You're listening to the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, Episode 8. This episode, I'm talking with Hardy Jones, who has spent more than 30 years investigating and working to save dolphins. He began unique research on dolphins in the Bahamas in 1978, which has led to four internationally broadcast films and many awards. In 1979, he broke the story of the slaughter of dolphins on Iki Island, Japan, which led to international outrage and helped shut down the killing of dolphins in several villages in Japan. Since then, Hardy has worked at Futo and Taiji to stop the last vestiges of slaughter on Japan's main island. Hardy has covered the increasing levels of toxic chemicals in our oceans and their connection to disease in dolphins and human beings. Hardy is a former journalist with CBS News and he attended Tulane University and studied law at Columbia University under a CBS Foundation Fellowship, as well as co-founding the non-profit BlueVoice.org with actor Ted Danson in 2000. Hardy is also the author of The Voice of the Dolphins, which covers his 33 years of work and extraordinary underwater encounters with dolphins, killer whales and sperm whales. Hardy, thank you so much for joining me this morning on the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast. How are you this morning? Just fine, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you so much. Absolute privilege to have you on. Um, I'm going to start by asking you the question I, I pretty much ask everyone for the first question, and that is to just give us a little bit of background on how you got into filmmaking. Can you tell us a bit about that, some of that history? Yeah, I was... Uh... From a very young lad, um, I was interested in news, and for some reason I just wanted to be a CBS News correspondent, um, and in fact ended up um, at CBS News after I got out of the Peace Corps where I served in Peru. So uh, I, I did work at CBS. Um, it was a wonderful place to work with people like Walter Cronkite and um, Eric Severide, Richard C. Hoddleth, names who were giants during World War II and, and then for many years after that. But for some reason, um, I just uh, wanted to be, well, well I, get, I guess I got lured out to sea by the dolphins. I started to read about dolphins in the uh, middle 70s and just became so intrigued by the idea that we had this non-human intelligence on our planet that, um, you know, people are talking about finding extraterrestrial intelligence, but we already had this intelligence in the oceans and a much better bet for contact and communication than um, finding something in the, you know, the Crab Nebula or whatever. So um, I quit the, the what you might call the hard news business and set out to make a documentary, which um, was 1978. And um, I originally thought, well, I'll, I'll make a, a documentary about dolphins in uh, probably in captivity, but uh, I didn't like the idea of captivity, 
And I thought, um, maybe I should try it in the wild. And, <clears throat> pardon me, I hunted around for someplace where people were contacting dolphins in the wild, and I found out that really there was no such place. I um, met Jacques Cousteau when he was in Seattle in, the United, in Washington State, and, I, and he said, uh, c'est impossible, monsieur, absolument impossible. He told me you cannot contact dolphins in the, in the wild, they will run away. But luckily, I just kept searching and phoning, and I eventually was led to a school of spotted dolphins uh, on the northwest corner of the Little Bahama Banks. And um, that totally changed my life. So from that point on, uh, I mean, judging by your work, it looks like you are absolutely 100% hooked on dolphins. Um, what was that transition at that point uh, to, to filmmaking? Uh, well, um, I actually started making films when I was very young. With, with a, I had a Bolex wind-up camera and another camera that I got from a guy who used it in the U.S. Navy in World War II and filmed the Battle of Okinawa um, with that camera. So I had these two, uh, what we would think today of as antediluvian cameras, but they were 16 millimeter and they did a fine job. So um, I always, my, my intent always was to film the dolphins because at that time there were literally hundreds of thousands of dolphins a year being killed in the tuna fishery which I think people are generally aware of, but um, the uh, open seas uh, fisheries for tuna were using these uh, kind of net which trapped dolphins as well as the tuna. And um, they were killing just tens of hundreds of, literally hundreds of thousands of dolphins. So I said, well, I'll, I will go out and make a movie that will... Um, bring home the nature of the true nature of these dolphins. They won't, uh, I'll personalize them. I'll get in with the pods, um, get people to know how marvelous they are. And th this will contribute to stopping the, uh, the slaughter, slaughter of so many wonderful animals. And after, after being discouraged in the idea of doing it in the wild, I met a treasure diver who um, told me in total confidence where I could find a school of friendly dolphins. And this was this location in the Bahamas. And um, he was, he's kind of a piratical character. He said to me, I'm going to tell you this because you tell me you're going to save dolphins with it. But if you've lied to me, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> wow. So, and he looked like just the type who could do it, but I didn't betray him. Um, I put together a, a partnership, raised money, um, got a boat, went out into the open sea um, to the, the point that he had uh, indicated and uh, 
lo and behold, the dolphins were there and they were friendly. And um, I've spent years and years since then filming them. I, I, I'm not quite sure how many films I've made of them, but probably four or five. Four or five. And um, so that filming was always my intent. It, it was also the way to pay for it. Um, I, I paid for these expeditions in two ways. I would get film contracts, and then um, that was usually not enough to um, pay for uh, the very expensive proposition of a, chartering a boat for weeks on end and so, so forth. So sometimes we would sell the empty berths, the unused berths, to, uh, to people who would come along on the trip with us. And uh, over the years, I became more successful, better known, um, have, been, have been able to continue the work for dolphins um, since then. So when you first uh, were heading out there to film these dolphins, uh, did you actually have a contract to film to make a documentary when you were first heading out, or was it something you were doing on spec just to gather footage? Yeah, that's a very important question and a puzzling answer. Um, the first film we did, which ended up being called Dolphin, we, we, we did it on spec and were funded by investors' money. Um, it turns out that if you, at least in those days, that if you bring in a finished film, you would get much less for it than if you had enough upfront contract, which doesn't make sense to me because I would think that a commissioning editor would say, um, well, okay, we're going to give you $100,000 to go out and make this film. He has no idea that you're going to be successful. It could rain. It could be storms. Your boat could sink. Um, your camera could be out of focus. I mean, back in those days when, when you were shooting film, you didn't get, get to look at it until you got back to land, processed, and screened it. So, I mean, you literally could be have been using a camera that was out of focus completely or flawed in some way or another, as opposed to bringing in a film that was finished. And they could say, okay, you got it. There's no risk to us. We either like it or we don't. But we got very little money for that first film. And um, the, the amount was, I believe, $25,000. And that came from, uh, from PBS, public broadcasting in the U.S., but you uh, you had to actually raise the funds like privately to go out there in the first place. So you were literally putting your neck on the line before you had even filmed anything with investors' money. Yes, I was putting my neck on the line and, and their money. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which, so. you know, it's, it's important just because I'm, you know, it's one of the questions I get a lot is um, with new filmmakers trying to break into filmmaking, they... You know, so much these days they want to see the open door that they just have to walk through and, and they're a filmmaker. And, you know, I, I think any established filmmaker will tell anyone in that situation that that just doesn't exist, right? There is no open door. You have to make a door um, or, you know, if you find a door, you've got to work really hard to get through it. 
And I think it's just, it's a really good story because um, of the fact it shows that, you know, you would have had nothing unless you had actually gone, found money and put yourself on the line in terms of owing that money. It had nothing to do with a network or, you know, the network was going to pay you to do this. You actually had to build this this career yourself from nothing. And I think that's how so many filmmakers start and very, very important. And it means that you've got to have so much um, self uh, um, you know, you've got a belief. You've got to believe that you can actually go and do it and have the passion to do that. Yeah, that, that, that's true. And, and there is no single path. Um, one way, of course, to, um, to get started is to have some original, compelling, dramatic subject matter where you can take it to some agent or distributor or um, broadcaster and say, I have footage of a great white shark um, being eaten by a killer whale. And that is going to get somebody's attention. But if you come in with just another story or just sort of a, a green story about how the earth is going to hell and we, we're, we've got to stop it or we're all doomed, um, nobody's going to pay any attention to you. Right. And so... And, and so, sorry, taking you back to where you were, and uh, PBS paid for that first documentary. W what happened from there on out? What, with your next film, were you commissioned to make that? My second film was called Island at the Edge, and it was the film that got me over to Japan um, when, uh, when I discovered that they were slaughtering large numbers of dolphins. And I, again, I raised that money on private investment. There was a period in the 70s in, in California where I lived when people were extraordinarily idealistic and they, uh, they were up for anything that they thought could, and, and also a lot of wealthy people, they, they were up for changing the world. So it was not that difficult to raise the money. Um, the second film I went over, um, shot the story of the dolphin killing and the complexities behind it and actually was never able to do very much with that film. It only ended up being half an hour, which is a, um, an inconvenient length. However, um, it did get on CBS News as a news story and um, it caused a tsunami of protest against the, this practice of killing dolphins and um, and it um, actually made an enormous change. Many of the villages in Japan that were killing dolphins stopped doing it as a result of the uh, storm of protest that hit Japan due, due to that footage that I shot. Now so, that so, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so that was not financially successful. It didn't get out on the air um, to, a, to a large audience as, a, as I had hoped. But it, the other use of it was as news footage. And it, again, it helped move my career along another step. Uh, I had more recognition and um, we had had quite a thundering success with, with this investigation. 
Um, but beyond that, my my next films have all been films that my next films until now have all been films which um, were funded by PBS, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, or or other entities of that kind. Today, what we're working on is a film on Peru. Um, so I'm back, you know, to my old Peace Corps stomping grounds. Um, down in Peru, they kill thousands of dolphins a year for use as shark bait. And what we did is slowly gather funding for this, and sh we shot it in in pieces as the, as the money came in. Got we sent an undercover guy out on a boat. Um, for 25 days, a couple hundred miles off the coast of Peru, and he got the footage of them spearing and butchering dolphins and using it as shark bait. And then he got the footage of the sharks as well, uh, which was ghastly, ghastly stuff. This, the cruelty is incredible. So now we're in the position of trying to um, find a market for that and uh, for that f new film. And what we're finding is that the world has changed since I was regularly making films. The last film that I really made as a television film was back in 2006. Um, done a lot of films for the web and that kind of thing. But um, now we have this really extraordinary film. Um, it's dramatic. Our guy was in danger all the time. Um, there's some good news around it. So it's not just a total downer of a film. But I'm finding that uh, it, the world today is incredibly complex with Amazon, Netflix, um, so many other potential points of release that uh, it's taking a lot of work to figure out how to how to go that's a, a very interesting point because i think we're we're all kind of stuck in this middle place at the moment the um you know more established filmmakers who are now looking at this change in tide where we have all of these different distribution networks and then the new filmmakers who are also kind of struggling because they don't know where to go i mean it used to be a lot a lot easier with just kind of network TV and the few networks you would go to. And now it does seem there's a plethora of ways to get your work out there and potentially be paid. Um, obviously always lots of ways of not being paid you know, as a filmmaker. Um, and so how are you at a place now where you, you see the most viable way of getting that film out or are you still kind of in the juggling act of working out where, where it should go? Well, what I would like to do, the, the, the best thing that could happen to us would be to get a distributor or, a, or an agent who would represent the film, who knows the business, who knows sequencing is very important in, in a film. You don't, want to go, you don't want to go out and, for instance, sell it to Germany alone and then go back to, let's say, Discovery Channel or any number of other outlets and say, oh, okay, well, I can sell you world rights except for Germany. They're going to go, well, Germany's a 
huge right. market for us. Um, so you ha you have to sequence your sales so that you get it into the most powerful release that you can first, and then you try to negotiate a contract with Windows, um, which allow you to sell, let's say, after three years, you can sell it to Netflix, or, but it's, it's very complex. So the good news is there's a lot of ways to go, and the bad news is there's a lot of ways to go. Absolutely. Well, now, going back a little bit to um, your days, you know, making actually out there with the camera and filming, um, it, it looks to me as most of your work has been investigative journalism, actually out there kind of filming things that others don't want to have filmed. Can you tell me just a little bit about that kind of process and... You know, it's very different to standard filming where literally you can turn up with a camera most of the time, all the pre-production's in place. And so, you know, the producer's done their groundwork. You turn up and people are expecting you. Obviously, with investigative journalism, you've got to be somewhere. You've got to try and film. You've got to, most of the time, no doubt, do it covertly so that you're not seen. And at the same time, no doubt you're risking your life. Can you just explain a little bit about that kind of uh, that way of filming? Well, when we first went to Japan to um, to this place called Iki Island, where they were slaughtering uh, thousands of dolphins, um, we had a bit of luck. We were told we we could see across a bay that there were dolphins being killed, the bloody water being slashed up into the air and so forth. So we tried to go over and we were told it's prohibited to go over to the island. There's no way, by the, by the way, that, you, that a bunch of Americans can travel around with a film set up in Japan and do it covertly. Some people have asked me, I'm six foot seven tall, some people have said, well, did you disguise yourself? And I said, <laughs> as what, a tree? <laughs> right. I, you know, I just am not going to pass for Japanese. Um, but what happened was that this old man came up to us and he said, you know, something very interesting is happening out on that island. I can take you there with my boat. He, clearly a guy who had not gotten the memo. And so we said, sure. So we got in this boat. We crossed over the harbor um, onto the, a, a point quite far from where they were killing the dolphins. And he landed us. And we then climbed up over a small mountain and came down behind them with our cameras. And we started filming. And they came up to us with spears and um, they were literally sticking spears in our face and obviously suggesting that we go elsewhere. Um, but I just kept saying, wakarimasen, wakarimasen, and smiling and, you know, behaving like a buffoon. Um, and it mystified them. They didn't know what to do. Wakarimasen, by, by the way, means uh, I, I don't understand. So eventually they kind of turned their back and went back to their bloody business. And we continued to film. 
Um, later, we were told that we would have been killed by those guys, except for one fortunate thing, which was that a helicopter from Asahi News was hovering overhead. And they, they, the Japanese news network was filming the kill as well. Oh, wow. And so the fishermen assumed that we had come out of that helicopter and that therefore we were heavy hitters. They didn't know we were just a gaggle of California guys with a few cameras, you know, 100 foot load cameras. Um, they didn't, so, so they didn't kill us. But um, that was a, you know, that was dodgy. But then I got off the island, flew to uh, Tokyo with the film footage. I had, and, and I went to the CBS News Bureau. I had worked at CBS until a little t before that. And uh, they said, yeah, we'll process the film. And uh, they put it on the air. And that was the beginning of the explosive resistance to the dolphin killing in Japan. Um, so I have never properly gone undercover, but um, when we have been working in Peru, our guy, uh, our Peruvian German cameraman, said he wanted to film shark fishing, and he he paid for the gasoline for the boat to go out, and so he was he was on the boat under false pre pretenses which I guess is a sort of under, undercover. But he did, he did get the footage, and the only way you're going to get this kind of groundbreaking, um, world-changing footage is to get the stuff, get the bloody stuff where it's happening. And it does involve, it does involve risk. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it, you know, it's one of those, it's incredible to hear, obviously, how you know, you, you were confronted and there was the potential of being killed there. And, um, uh, and did, how did that reinforce what you were doing? Did it make you feel, you know, more driven to highlight these things? I mean, uh, obviously you were driven anyway, but you, you've gone on to found uh, bluevoice.org, which is um, a nonprofit all about saving the dolphin and, and, and marine mammals. Um, Tell us a little bit about that and kind of how these these experiences reinforce, you know, what you're doing now. Well, what happened from our effort to go to Japan, which was really, you know, a, a very small effort, a very small group of people, small amount of money, um, really didn't know what we were doing until we got there. Um, but once we got there, we got the footage, we got it on CBS news, satellite around the world. And suddenly you're left with a re realization that my Lord, me and a couple of buddies with our cameras can have this kind of impact. So there's no excuse in the future to say, I can't do anything about this thing whatever it is that you see and that you care about and that's in danger, um, 
you can't say, well, gee, I don't know what to do. I can't do anything about it because, you know, once you had that have that experience of, you know, just blasting your way across the international airwaves and you, you know you can do it again. So there's an obligation and that obligation dovetailed with the fact that I, while I was working on these tragic stories in um, in Japan, I was working on the marvelous story of the spotted dolphins out in the Bahamas. And um, um, that even raised my level of urgency because I, I would see any dolphin killed at Iki, Japan, as being the equal to the dolphin that I knew in the Bahamas. Now that the the spotted dolphin in the Bahamas, I, that that's a story that I think I I watched a bit of a video clip about um, with the hammerhead shark. Is that right? Where the the dolphins come in and um, chase away the hammerhead? Yes, that's can, right. Yeah, can you explain a little bit about that that clip? Oh sure. Um, I had been out film, uh, filming for five or six hours that day, and it got to be late in the afternoon. Um, everybody else had gotten back aboard the, the dinghy, and uh, I was in the water just enjoying that late afternoon magic light, warm water, like kind of lying on my back, um, taking a short break before joining the group. And I looked down and I saw this large creature coming towards me, uh, with a bunch of dolphins kind of swimming around here and there. And then I noticed that the um, the shark had a, I'm sorry, I noticed that this creature had um, a horizontal, sorry, the, the creature I was focused on had a vertical fin instead of a horizontal fin. And I said, that ain't no dolphin I've ever seen. And then I could see the, the flat um, front part, mandible, of, of this shark, oh, a hammerhead shark. And lone hammerhead sharks in the Atlantic are potentially dangerous creatures. There are places where you can swim with hundreds of hammerheads, smaller ones, Luinis, and um, they're really not dangerous. But... The hammerhead in the Atlantic can be dangerous. And it was coming right towards me. And so I said, hmm, what do I do now? And I said, well, of course, get the camera up as something that will be between me and the shark, and I can bump it if it comes straight at me. But I also turned it on. And the shark continues towards me across the sand. And all of a sudden, just with a whoosh over my shoulder, my left shoulder come two dolphins, and from the right side come two more dolphins, and they dive on the hammerhead, screaming their dolphin high-pitched whistles and click trains. And what I think they were doing is blasting the very sensitive lateral line on the hammerhead, because once they turned up the volume, and they dove in like a squadron, they, they joined into four, and they, they dove on the, uh, the hammerhead in formation. 
And clearly, it totally upset the shark. It started twisting and writhing and then just disappeared into the blue. I mean, obviously, anybody who looks at that footage will say that the dolphins saved me from the onrushing shark. And the the incredible thing about diving or swimming with dolphins, it, um, I've had the pleasure of uh, filming um, on the sardine run and uh, a bait ball of sardines with dolphins, common dolphin coming through and, and, and feeding. And there is something amazingly special about being with those creatures because they do make you feel like you're part of their pod. I mean, it literally, you feel like you're communicating with them when really you're just kind of, you're in there, in their space and, and they accept you. So um, how has how has your kind of, your, your love for them, if you like, you know, over the years um, expanded with that kind of, I mean, I can see from my, my limited experience, I, I've uh, dove with dolphin, uh, dolphins twice now, and I can see how uh, captivating it is to, to want to get back in the water constantly with them. Um, is that kind of what drew you, drew you to them in the first place? Well, what I tried to do in, it's described in my, my book, The Voice of the Dolphins, um, which actually contains a lot of stories that I was never able to film and are very illustrative of the kind of things you're talking about. But it, I think the overall message that I was trying to get to people was that these dolphins are, they're not people dressed up in dolphin suits they are a, a parallel creature who is every bit as sensitive and intelligent and aware and um, loving, um, social as we human beings are. So I, I do believe that when you're dealing with a dolphin, you're dealing with a creature who is pretty much like yourself. And I am not a... Um, you know, a, a new ager. Um, I, w I went to law school. I worked in the news business. And if anything's going to make you skeptical in, in life, it's law school and working in the news business. Right. So um, I consider myself a very objective observer. And I can tell you from my experience that uh, they are very, very much like us. The, uh, the book ends with the story and, and the movie I did for PBS, um, which was called The Dolphin Defender, ends with a reunion that I had with one particular dolphin in the Bahamas, whom we called Chopper. Um, I first met Chopper in 1979 when he was a little pup, and um, he had a distinctive mark on his dorsal fin that enabled us to very easily identify him over the years. When I went to PBS to, to pitch the story uh, that I wanted them to fund, I said, yes, I'm going, I'm going to find this dolphin that I first knew in 1979. I'm going to find this dolphin, and uh, we're going to film the reunion. <laughs> wow. And they said, oh, that's fabulous. I think that's what sold the film to them. And then, of course, you walk out of the office and say, oh, my Lord, what did I just promise? Right. 
But the fact was, and again, this is truth, on the last day of our shoot, we'd been looking, we, we'd been out for um, three or four weeks looking for him and filming other aspects, obviously filming all the time, these other aspects of the dolphins' lives. But on that last day, he showed up. And I saw him from the bow of the boat, got in the water, swam over to him, and started making a bunch of clicks and whistles of my own. And he turned towards me and gave a sonar blast, checking me out. And I think he said, good Lord, it's that tall one again. <laughs> and he came screaming over to me and swam circles round and round and below me. And, um, and then we just settled into this long eye-to-eye -eye swim together where we were both on the same um, tack. And um, it, it was so clear that he recognized me that, um, you know, great thing about film, you can tell these stories in print and people might say, ah, well, is he exaggerating? Or, but in this case, um, once you've nailed it on film, you've got the evidence. Oh, what an incredible story. Now, that, um, that, that filming you were doing there was for, or, or the first time you met Clipper, that was with the Dolphin Defender, correct? The, the movie you made. Um, that, I believe, was with Rico Barry and the moving the two trapped dolphins that were captured for um, the kind of the entertainment industry. Is that right? Well, the first film that I did was called Dolphin Back, and that was released in 79. Um, the Dolphin Defender was released in 2006, which contained some elements of uh, this Nicaragua dolphin rescue that Rico Barry uh, so ably carried out, but that had been shot um, a few years before, a couple, couple or three years before. So the Dolphin Defenders an amal amalgamation of the high points of my life in the world of dolphins. And um, that was a great success story. Rick is a really extraordinarily energized and um, dedicated guy. We went down to Nicaragua to release two dolphins in what was essentially a cesspool of water. And um, Rick organized a pump, got, got the water changed. He organized the Nicaraguan Navy and um, he got fish for them and electrolytes and he propped the dolphins up for a couple of days and then we um, got into this helicopter and helicoptered them to a couple of weeks of rehab on this corn island in the Caribbean. And then they were released. It was, uh, you know, just a high point in my life to watch those dolphins go in the water. And then we waited about 30 seconds and we said, oh, well, they're gone. But after about 30 seconds, they came back towards our boat and just did this flying leap in perfect tandem. And then they disappeared forever. Oh, that's beautiful. Now, that is available, I believe, on Amazon to, to rent or buy. 
is that right? I think the 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 dolphin defender is on there. Yeah, actually, uh, a lot of my work is on uh, is on Amazon. Okay. The dolphin defender is certainly certainly there, but there are others of my films that are that are there as well. And that's wonderful. What I'll do at, um, on our uh, website podcast page is I'll put a resource link so people can find those and, uh, and go straight to them and, and check them out. Now, some of the videos on the bluevoice.org website are, you know, really, really hard to watch, obviously, because of their graphic nature of the slaughter of dolphins. Um, how, how do you find that? filming that you know when you're actually there and obviously you know your primary goal is to get it on camera so that you can get this out to the world you know what what's it what's it like how do you cope with that um with that experience because it, it it's hard enough sitting in front of your computer or tv and watching that stuff to actually be there and feel that kind of energy around the place you know how does that make you feel well, the first thing is your adrenaline kicks in. So adrenaline gives you a feeling of more power than maybe you actually have. Um, so you feel a little bit invincible. Like a Japanese guy comes up with a spear and sticks it in your face and you go push the spear away and say, I don't understand and smile at him and you know, if you didn't have the adrenaline, you wouldn't be able to do that. But the other thing is that, yes, you're looking at scenes which are unbelievably horrifying. I mean, dolphins just being stabbed to death in front of your eyes. And you, you could say, well, oh, this is terrible, uh, or cry, or shout, or get emotional. But that's not what happens, really. The, what you realize very quickly is there's no room for my emotions here. This is just way too big for me to get into my personal feelings now. What I do now is I take all of the, of the evidence that I possibly can gather, put together the most powerful film and still images and storyline, and... Um, and that's my responsibility at this moment. There's no room for anything else. And then, okay, you, you do your job, you go back to your Rio Con or your hotel or wherever you pitched your tent. And then at two o'clock in the morning, you wake up and go, holy hell, what did I just see? Does that, um, you know, do, does that kind of haunt you with the the amount of that you've seen? Do you, you do you have reoccurring kind of nightmares about that kind of stuff? Yeah, actually, I do. Um, it's not like my life is plagued with nightmares, but in my case, because I end up editing a lot of this material and writing it, and I'm revisiting it constantly. Um, I see the the horror again and again and again, and I can tell you, it doesn't get any easier over time. It's as vivid as the day I was there. Um, but you do have the satisfaction of knowing that you are getting this material out to the world, and 
in the case of a PBS film, it's likely to be seen by 20 million people around the world. When watching an investigative journalism uh, piece, a documentary, you know, it's hugely inspiring. It kind of leaves you wanting to do something, wanting to help. And I know as a filmmaker, there's been many times that I've looked at stories and felt that, you know, they're possible stories for me to tackle in that way. What would you say to filmmakers who are looking to get into investigative journalism in terms of kind of exposing, um, you know, a situation through film? Is it something that they really need to think about very hard and fast before getting involved in? What, what kind of advice do you have for them? Well, you certainly, if you're going to go to Japan or you're going to go to Peru and try and get in the way of fishermen who are going to kill, uh, kill dolphins and maybe, I mean, the guy we had out on that boat for 25 days, 200 miles offshore, if they had discovered what he was really up to, they could just very easily have used him as shark bait. And then they get back to land and they say, oh, gee, it was terrible. The guy fell overboard. We did everything we could to get him to rescue him. But um, uh, tragically, we couldn't. He's, he's a goner. So you, you need to be aware that these things can involve threats to your life uh, and think that through. Often, though, well, yeah, you do get a sense of a place. In, in Japan, you are um, much safer than you would be, let's say, you, if you went to Venezuela or, or many other countries in the world where they really would kill you if they found you were messing with their whatever, their drug trade or their dolphin killing. They really would kill you. But in Japan, there's a certain restraint that they have, even though it looks like these guys sometimes are going to explode um, with, with their rage at us. Um, we kind of trust a certain protocol that protects us. And we always check in with the police. Um, there's no hard and fast rules, but you, you definitely need to think clearly about it. And at the end of the day, I think that, you know, most people in those situations is the passion that drives them for the particular subject um, that makes you want to put yourself in that position in the first place. Yeah, if you don't have any passion, um, I, I think you're, uh, you're trying to work without the, the fuel that sends you forward and keeps you in the field and circumstances of danger and discomfort you've got to feel it pretty strongly so with everything you've seen throughout your filming career um how do you see the future now for um marine mammals in general but certainly the dolphins well the overriding thing in the world today is the um probably climate change if we, we can do a lot of great work in individual locations, Peru, um, Indonesia, Japan, so many different places where so many people are working so hard to achieve change or um, make things better or prevent them from getting worse. But if we don't solve climate change, 
it really is very, very uh, pessimistic outlook. So at this current moment in time, we are um, focused on preventing the, the new president of the United States from withdrawing from climate, the climate treaty. And um, we're, I guess my, my message would be people really have to get involved. You just can't leave it up to other people to, to do the work. What's that phrase? If not now, when, if not me, who? That's the kind of thing you've got to, and you've got to realize you can make a difference. There have been these extraordinary demonstrations that because of internet networking have sprung up almost instantaneously at airports and plazas around the United States to protest against, against some of the uh, really dangerous new policies that are there. So once again, get involved. There are all sorts of ways of getting involved today that are facilitated, especially by the internet. And it's actually very exciting once you get into, once you go from despair to action, you have just released the valve of energy, uh, high octane fuel that will move you along and uh, put you in touch with other people and ideas and enable you to feel that you can make a change because you really can as an individual. I think that's uh, beautifully said there, Hardy. Um, and, and one of my questions was how can people help? And I think that has just answered that perfectly. Um, but directly, if we, if we look at um, bluevoice.org, your foundation, um, how can people directly help Blue Voice? Well, the truthful answer is that the best way to help our work is to send money. We're a very small organization. Um, we do work with uh, organizations, very tightly work with organizations in Switzerland, Germany, Peru, um, and, and others around the world. Um, and, and people often call and they say, well, I want to volunteer for this or that or the other thing. Um, just volunteers are not something that we can really use. So uh, it takes money to fly people around, to keep them in the field, to edit films, to market the films. Um, and as prosaic as it may sound, that's the best answer I can give. And we have a, a donation page on, on our website, bluevoice.org. And I was just having a look at that actually while you were talking and uh, just wanted to, for you just to tell us a little bit more about Blue Voice while I've got you on here. Um, I see it was founded by yourself and Ted Danson, the actor. Um, and you actually, you have a movie that Blue Voice, because not all of your movies are directly through Blue Voice. Is that correct? But, but I think some of them are. Can you just give us a little more clarity on that? You mean the, the, the major films that I've done? Yeah, that's right. And I, I see that I think Blue Voice, you have a, a film that uh, Michael Douglas narrated. Is that actually via Blue Voice, that made via Blue Voice? No, it was that was done in the late 80s, maybe late 80s, early 90s. And that was done for Turner Broadcasting. Oh, I see. Back, yeah, back when Ted Turner was running things, um, a great environmentalist and... 
Um, that was a, a very interesting film in that, once again, uh, a fellow named Sam Labuddy had gone undercover on a Costa Rican tuna fishing boat. And he went on and he acted like a clown, like he was the cook. He acted kind of like a clown running around videoing everything on the boat for several weeks just to establish the image of him with a camera all over the place. What happened is they surrounded a school of dolphins um, off the Pacific coast and it was a terrible, uh, terrible loss of dolphins in the nets. But um, Sam got the video, the video came out and then became the core of our film that we were doing, which was a lot, a lot of it was about happy, um, happy stuff about dolphins, um, how wonderful they are and a lot of the stories I've told you. Then I got in touch with Michael Douglas and Michael, um, who I'd gone to school with actually back in the 50s, um, Michael agreed to narrate it and he's a very powerful individual. I mean, you see him on the screen and he, he's an actor, but when you see him in person, there's a radiance to him. And uh, he was really mad about all these dolphins being killed. So he was the host of it and he narrated it. And then we would do inserts of him talking to camera in the film. And then this is pre-internet. So what we did is um, there was a telephone company a facility that you could dial. I think it was a 900 number and each caller would be billed $6 and they would send a telegram to the chairman of Heinz, which owns Starkist, which is one of the major importers of this tuna. And just as it happened, the daughter of the chairman of Heinz um, saw our film and went and said, Daddy, Daddy, why are they killing those dolphins? And he said, huh, what? And he looked at it, and two weeks later he said, we're not going to buy any more dolphin, any more tuna caught on dolphins. Wow. So once again, you know, a single guy, Sam Labuddy, coupled with a film that we were putting out, was able to make this change, which has saved the lives of who countless dolphins, but hundreds of thousands of dolphins for sure. And it just goes to show again the power of film. You know, I think we all get caught up these days very much so about getting eyes on films in terms of, you know, millions of people. I mean, it's always been that way. You know, you want to get millions of views of your, your piece, but it just goes to show that one person seeing something can, can make such a drastic change, a vast change. Uh, and that's the power that, that we have with film. Hardy, it's been fantastic speaking with you this morning. Um, just give your book another plug, um, The Voice of the Dolphin. Tell us a little more about that. I'm going to put a link to it um, on the webpage so people can find it on Amazon. Just give us a, a, another uh, uh, a quick overview of your book. Yeah, it's, it's actually a collection of um, my experiences with dolphins from the late 70s up until... Uh, the mid to, to about 2005. 
And uh, a lot of it contains stories that I couldn't film because as, a, as filmmakers will know, once you turn your camera on, you've changed the situation. You've got to have the camera to make the movie, but when you turn that camera on, you've changed the situation. So I would go out sometimes without my, um, without my camera. And one example is when uh, I, I brought a dog whistle into the water with me. Dog whistles have very high pitch. Dolphins exist in a world of high pitch sound. So I blew it and uh, had no idea what, I thought it might evoke casual interest. But what happened is one of the huge male dolphin leaders of the pack came swimming over to me very aggressively. And he swam around me in circles so forcefully that my arms and legs were shaking like a rag doll. And then he bolted off. Uh, so I have no idea what happened. But that was one of the stories that's in the book, um, The Voice of the Dolphins, that I, of course, couldn't film. So um, the net net of that book, I think, is um, somebody just wrote me the other day and they said, I read your book and I now know what it's like to be a dolphin. Not exactly, but I know that there is a real thinking, feeling creature inside that dolphin. And that was the purpose that I had in writing it. Oh, that's fantastic. And always great to get such great feedback um, on a book when, the, you know, they're explaining exactly the feeling you had for, for writing it. Well, again, it's been a pleasure, Hardy. Thank you so much for taking the time out for being on the podcast. Um, I'm going to put links on to uh, bluevoice.org. And just to remind people, there's a donate button on the website so they can go on there and do donate directly to your cause. Um, I'll put links on to you, some of your films, uh, the ones available to, to view online, and also to the book. And um, hopefully we'll get some some people getting on there, getting the book and, uh, and watching your films. Again, been a complete pleasure. Thanks so much, Hardy. My privilege. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Master Wildlife Filmmaking Podcast, then please leave a rating and a comment. And remember to subscribe to keep up to date with the series. You can find out more information on wildlife filmmaking at masterwildlifefilmmaking.com, where you'll find valuable free resources like downloadable reports and video tutorials. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.